SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. I think I'm going to make a sandwich. Hey, Gantu, how about a sandwich? I don't want a sandwich. You sure? Last of the baloney. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts are best that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shirky. With me is Thrasher. No action. And we are looking at the second film uh, by release date, but apparently not chronologically, as I just found out, which makes things fun, uh, in the Lilo and Stitch quadrilogy. Um, Stitch, the movie, came out in 2003, and uh, it seems to be uh, animated in uh, Korea, or South Korea. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was animated by Rough Draft Korea, which is the same studio that did all the animation for Futurama. Oh, that, that's a good factoid. I didn't know that. Uh, this was directed by Tony Craig and Roberts Ganaway, uh, written by Roberts Ganaway and Jess Winifield. Um, it has most of the vocal cast of the movie, um, which Disney is usually pretty good about. The only main exception is the uh, character of the boyfriend, who is barely in this, is played uh, by a different actor. Well, he's not only barely in this, but his relationship with Nani is inexplicable. Yeah, well, uh, we'll talk about that. So this this came out in 2003, right? And Yes, indeed. And uh, Disney was really pumping out these direct-to-video sequels, because this was like a year after the first one. Um, also, Disney at this time was doing a controversial practice uh, of releasing some of their direct-to-video sequels straight into theaters, like Jungle Book 2, Peter Pan 2. Really? Those had uh, theatrical runs? Yeah. Huh. Not not big ones, but it was enough to uh, allegedly demorale the, the crew at the Disney headquarters. Well, I remember I had a I had a, a professor, uh, Professor Stern. He sadly passed away uh, a year or two ago. But one of uh, he was an animation professor uh, back in college, and one of his friends was the head of the department at Disney that made the direct-to-video sequels. And he he had this story he told. But basically, what it comes down to is no one wanted to make those movies. No one sh- thought they should make those movies. But damn it, they were being paid to make those movies. So if if you've ever wondered why you get a feeling of creeping despair when you watch a Disney direct-to-video sequel, that creeping despair was felt by everyone in the creative process for those films. I've seen a handful of them. Some of them aren't that bad. Some of them are, you know, it it all depends, I think, on who's animating it on the script. Um, The voice talent, I think, generally is pretty good. That's one thing Disney is strong on. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, the voice cast here is great, and they're they're doing like individually they're doing great performances but you know how like you can sometimes tell when different voices were recorded in different sessions separated by like few days and miles 
you can really hear that in this movie. Everybody sounds like they recorded their lines in isolation without hearing any of the audio tracks of the other characters they would be speaking with or reacting to. Well, that's really common practice in American animation, period. I mean... Well, well no, it, it, it is, but Disney usually is usually better than that. If they're not having people mm -hmm. record lines together, you're still listening to the other audio tracks so that you can kind of preserve the rhythm. And I think that's, I that's this movie's biggest crime. The pacing is completely off and it's very, very stilted. You could take this movie and edit it down to a half hour and you'd probably have a pretty tight like episode of a TV show. Uh, and hey, speaking of episode of, of TV show, this is less of a movie and more of a pilot to the Lilo and Stitch TV series that would have come out uh, later that year. It didn't come out later that year. It came out the, ne the next month, right? Like right after it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was pr pr pretty sure. close. It was on. later that year. But yeah, I think, um, no, that's that's fair. I mean, also, in all honesty, I could totally believe that this was originally the first two episodes of the series, and then they just decided to graph them together and make it a movie, just like they did with Kronk's New Groove. Just like they did with the Atlantis direct-to-video thing that was supposed to be a pilot for a series. I think that never happened. Um, Atlantis 2, I, I forget the name of that one. And uh, uh, just like we were talking before the show about Clone Wars, the Clone Wars movie was episodes kind of rejiggered to be a movie so to speak, because George Lucas thought, oh, this deserves on the big screen. Um, so, uh, but I think at least unlike some of the other Disney direct video stuff, this doesn't look as cheap as some of the other ones. You mentioned these people, this uh, studio, Rough Draft Korea, also animated Futurama. The backgrounds have that painterly quality. Uh, I think that the originals had, I mean, is, the animation, of course, is not as strong as a much bigger budget feature. But it doesn't look like complete shit. Well, I think I think what it is, I think what holds the animation back is that this was made during a real transitional period. Uh, the last of the cell an traditionally animated cell animated series were were pretty much dying off. But not everybody had adapted to the realities of digital animation, and so as as a result. There are a lot of bits of physical action in this movie that look awkward because they're trying to apply the principles of hand-drawn animation to digital animation software that can't quite work with it. Yeah, and it, it's especially noticeable with... I mean, by this time, Disney for a while had been incorporating CG in their 2D animated features, right? I mean, with Beauty and the Beast, you had the ballroom sequence famously. Uh, in this, the spaceships flying around, the vehicles uh, are, you know, CG with the cell shading on top of it, and um, and that's where you can really see the yeah, rough draft yeah. animation style come to the fore. It, it it just looks like something pasted on. It's not done with with quite as much care. I mean, does it look like a spaceship? Sure, but that the lighting, the animation has come, CG animation has come a long way since then, and it really kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. I think you said transitional. That That's a great word for it. Um, and yet, I think the uh, the plot is kind of all over the place, but we should talk about that. Um, but I do appreciate, you know, you have these strong character designs, strong characters, and good voice performances. And that does anchor this film somewhat. And this plot, um, for a sequel, back to a pilot, though it may be, does not appear to be, um, God, what am I trying to say? This, this plot fits in this world. It doesn't feel forced. 
No, that that is true, and it and it does and it it does pay off something that is very lightly implied in the first film. As as we know, Stitch is referred to as Experiment Six Two Six, which we find out is not just an arbitrary serial number. He is the six hundred and twenty sixth iteration of a series of experiments, and that uh, Doctor Jamba has this sphere containing the previous six hundred and twenty five. Uh, iterations of the experiment, each one its own creature, uh, with its own kind of unique unique abilities. Which, admittedly, is not a bad place to go when you're doing a when you're doing a series. That being said, because they delay the full implications of having all these other experiments released until the very last scene, like it just it it feels kind of like a wasted opportunity. If you're gonna if you're gonna say this is a movie, it should be bigger than this. We should see more than like two of the experiments get out and cause mayhem. Oh, I mean, I would even start right there. The running time of this is sixty minutes. What what is the uh, the cutoff point between a feature and uh, a short film? Oh, like, yeah. it's kind of nebulous, right? So so when when this when this ended. Well, so two, two, two things. Halfway through, some, something came up, and I had to pause the movie and take care of something. And when I yeah. came back, I was, I was like horrified. Oh my god, I'm only halfway through. And then when it was over, I checked, and I didn't check the running time till it had ended. And like, wait a minute, this has been an hour and six minutes. This felt like a two and a half hours. Yeah, it it really does. It, it's something where the patchwork kind of storytelling, the overall plot I think is okay, but the way they go about it could, uh, could be better. But, um, well, if it, if it had a bit more focus, if it had just been about Gantu trying to recover the sphere, or if it had just yeah, been about um, low and stitch, having an adventure, trying to recapture the first of the experiments released sparky, the electric experiment, then it would have been pretty good, but there's so much, there's, there's a lot of fat to this movie. There's a lot of gristle that doesn't need to be there. Um, the, and one thing that, uh, so there's a new character that introduced that I, I kind of found frustrating. So we find out that Dr. Gantu didn't act alone, that he used to have a partner, a, uh, Dr. Uh, Jacques Hamstarville, or as everyone pronounces it, Hamster Wheel, who's this, as he says, gerbil-like alien, but ever, or hamster-like alien, but everyone refers to him as a gerbil-like alien. He is neither of those things. His character design, he is clearly modeled after a chinchilla. Oh, yeah, I don't know my animals that well. Um, the thing that confused me more, his name is Dr. Homsterville, but his accent is, like, French. Well, it, you know what it is? It's it's that Gabor Chupo uh, accent that could be, that I guess is best described as mustachian, where it could be any three places in Europe at any given time. It's the same accent that Dr. Mm. Nick has on The Simpsons. It's the same accent that hey, uh, Vladimir... Yeah. Lada has on uh, on the critic, which we've talked about, where it's just like you know everything gets weirdly emphasized. Uh, yeah, and yet it's not quite as Slavic as like when Tim Curry's trying to do a Russian accent or something. It's you know it's more in the higher register uh, and kind of the 
Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Like the, the mumble, mumbly European. And and he could be very he could be very funny because like the stilted way he delivers dialogue, you can have some neat comedy rhythms with that. Uh, he hasn't. He's very short, so he has a Napoleon complex. And there's a running gag where halfway through threatening people, he will ask to be put up on a stack of phone books so that he can be on eye level with them, which is only funnier when you realize there's abundant hover technology uh, available in this movie. But oh, but at the yeah, same time, true. because the voice is in such a vacuum, and because the pacing of everything is so stilted, it really puts the brakes on the comedy you could get out of the Doctor Hamsterville character. Certainly, it, and yet you know that they have a character that uh, the um, Gantu had a. No, it's not Gantu. Shit, who the, who the hell is the damn Jamba? Doctor? Thank you. Terrible at these names. Jamba that he had a partner in all these experiments like that makes sense no it, it is it is like it's it's not a bad it's not bad like it's it's like because Jamba he's still kind of an evil scientist so it's nice to have like a straight up mm. villainous scientist that he can play off of that being said I wish Gantu was the main antagonist uh after Gantu is hired by Hamsterville to recover the sphere Gantu just becomes a henchman to Hamsterville and has almost like no interesting dialogue. No, it's all just kind of uh, declaratory statements. Yeah, Gantu, sh Gantu should not be a sidekick. Gantu should be an antagonist in his own right. And I hate the way he takes, because very quickly takes second fiddle uh, to Hamsterville. And Kevin and Michael Richardson, just like in the film, does it in the first film, does a great job with Gantu's voice. That real deep kind of oh. not not quite James Roll Jones, it's its own thing, but like it's this you know this guy could beat the shit out of you. Like it's just really uh really something. Well the other thing I like is that he also does have fun doing some some uh some callbacks because there there's a there's a thrilling chase sequence in outer space where he's in his cruiser and he's got the sphere and he's being pursued by Lilo and Stitch who have stolen uh Pleakley and Jamba's spaceship and it's it's Stitch's escape scene, but in reverse. And there's just this great glee when uh, Gantu is like, "Ha ha! Now it's my turn!" And he engages his hyperdrive without clearing without clearing proximity to the other ship. And he repeats Stitch's insult from the first movie that "Ga chiste! and Stitch is just horrified. Like that works so well. Like you can tell he's really caring about the performance in that moment. But then after that, he's given nothing to do. Yeah, um, I mean, so we, we talked a bit about uh, Hamsterville and kind of the bad guys being set up, and this experiment is uh, escaping the experiment sixty-five, right? They're on the one before Stitch, and it's voiced by voiceover legend Rob Paulson. Who... Oh yeah, he he gets he gets released uh, on Hamsterville's ship, and his whole thing is he has all of Stitch's capabilities. He, uh, but he also has advanced language skills, so he's the one that's the most plain spoken of all the experiments. But he's also lazy and a coward, and so all he does is hang around eating sandwiches. He was my yeah. favorite character, and I wish there was more of him. Yeah, Rob Paulson pretty much uses uh, something rather close to his own speaking voice. He was you know, maybe most famous as Raphael on the uh, original Ninja Turtles series from the 80s. Like Yakko um, Warner. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yakko Warner from Animaniacs, which Animaniacs is coming back, isn't it, on Hulu? They're doing a... Uh, uh, 
eventually, although I'm, it certainly isn't going to be timely because of its protracted uh, development uh, cycle. But who no. knows? If the humor's sharp, that might not matter. Animaniacs depends so much on the writing, I think, more so than a lot of other um, cartoons. Uh, anyhow, the... Yeah, I mean, the bit with the sandwiches, it's, it's interesting. He also becomes... has kind of like the electric powers. Reminds me of the electric gremlin well he does a lot of the same things where he like zips into into like appliances and lighting makes them go haywire yeah. and he just cackles maniacally i believe he's voiced by frank welker if i uh, remember correctly oh that's a different one i get god damn it yeah that's right because they're both kind of yellowish um and they're both on the box which makes sense uh <laughs> I, I like how the box says stitch was experiment 626 meet the other 625 and they only show like three stitches well, they, they, and it is kind of a running gag because, you know, the, the lightning one is released very early on and 625 gets released early on. So there's this running gag where people keep talking about the 600, uh, the 625, actually 623. Yeah, and, and that's an okay joke, but it, it, to be deeply cynical about all this, they're ripping off Pokemon is what they're doing. Yeah. And, or and Dragon I, Ball or one of those things, like you're trying to collect all the, the gizmo, the things. And I'm wondering how I'm wondering how intentional that is because I mean, of course, Pokemon was hugely popular at the time, and the main new experiment in this is yellow and electrical and rodent-like. Oh yeah, uh, so there, there right. is a, a Pikachu, Pikachu. <laughs> potential Pikachu connection. Right. So that that yeah. could be a shameless uh, cash-in, uh, and of course they're contained in little balls and whatnot. I mean, the only thing that really makes it different <laughs> is at the end of at the end of this when the Galactic Council woman sort of charges them, it's like, okay, you're officially Galactic operatives. Your job is to find a home for all the experiments. So rather than trying to capture these creatures or make them fight, they are trying to find good nurturing homes for them, which actually, I find that very sweet. I like that that's how they resolve this problem. Although I have to wonder, does the Galactic Council woman have a job? I mean, presumably the job is Galactic Councilwoman, but she seems to have all the free time in the galaxy to just hang around Earth. I wish they'd do more of her. I love her design. It's kind of like that classic gray alien thing, and, and the voice is good, but she's just kind of like a nag in this one. She kind of, I don't know, felt like she had more of a authoritarian presence in the first one in the beginning, kind of setting up the universe. And I don't really think you, uh, you needed her here, or maybe she could have been incorporated in the story in a little bit of a better way. Um, one thing I think this film does do well is it introduces a concept that's huge in Hawaiian culture, that of Ohana. Well, I mean, we, we got that in the first film, but it's, it's really spelled out in, in mm -hmm. the opening scene on Earth where there's going to be this big party and... and uh, and uh, that, like, the idea is that the party is sort of to introduce you to the and make you part of the broader, like, island culture. And and and, and with his over enthusiasm, Stitch erects it. But kind of Lilo points out is like, oh, and we all call each other cousin, not because we're all related, because we're not, but because we see ourselves as a one big family. And that that becomes a running thing. Like, cousin is is the watchword for this movie. Yeah, I think if you took a shot every time he said cousin, you'd be shit faced. Like. 20 minutes and they really and this movie I mean you know in uh, western animation they consider animation for kids still a lot of the time which drives me up the wall I've talked about that forever on the show but this one is pitched much younger than I think the Lilo and Stitch feature the story is a lot simpler there's not 
you had, um, you know, you talked about being moved by some of the scenes in Lilo and Stitch, and I mean, this one, it's just very, uh, very surface level. The the only thing that moved me in this movie was Pleakley, because there's this, mm. so in the, fir- in the first movie, like, Pleakley was often, like, disguised as a woman with his Earth disguise, but in this movie, Pleakley is, like, straight up a cross-dresser, and I... I'm sure it was meant with like either as cheap comic intent or as a reference to his tenure on the kids in the hall. That being said, oh, I yeah, love right. I love the idea of Pleakley just being this gender fluid alien. I bet if they made this now, they would probably Yeah, I mean, the way they deal with it here, it is not done as gay panic, which you might sort of expect, where they go like, Oh, that's weird, what are you doing that for? It's just even like at the end of the credit, there's a little teaser where uh, uh, Pleakley um, and uh, Jamba want to get on the, the spaceship or something, and it flies off, and Pleakley looks kind of disappointed, he, and he's like, okay, I'll grab the wig. Like, you know, meaning that, oh, we're stuck here on, on uh, Hawaii, on Kauai. Uh, and they just treat it very matter-of-fact. Like, I guess he likes it. I don't know if he gets anything out of it. I don't know, like, what the gender is. I don't, I don't care. And and that the movie doesn't care, I think, is great because usually in these in any kind of movie when you have a a, a trans character, gender fluid, like they have to spell out exactly what's happening, and you can't just let that person be. What well, it is funny because it only really comes up. It it's only comes up in dialogue three times, and the first is when Nani is just talking, and again, you know, Pleakley, you know, I think he wears my clothes, and her tone is like not angry, more perplexed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, then the second time it comes up uh, is when Pleakley is wearing her jeans and T-shirt, and she's angry with him because he's borrowed her best T-shirt without asking permission. And then, and then also points out also not your color, which is yeah. a funny little fashion That's... comment. And then the third time is when there's this whole there's a whole elaborate phone tag where Pleakley is like calling different planets to try to track down uh, Jamba after he gets kidnapped. And uh-huh. he gets a and he, when they're waiting to hear a call from Homsterville with the with ransom demands, he gets a call from a girdle company, and he's just like, "Why would I order a girdle? I don't need to sculpt my form." <laughs> he's just so sort of sweetly embarrassed. I mean, I I would love to see like a a spinoff that's just a, a buddy comedy between Cleekly and Jumba. In all honesty, that probably should have been the way to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is Jamba's experiments. It might as well be his responsibility to round them up after they escape. I mean, the, the one thing that's sort of... Well, there's a lot of things misleading about this film, but the, as I mentioned, you know, on the, on the cover art and the DVD, it promises, oh, you're going to meet the other 625. That's not what happens in this movie. <laughs> they have... What, what the hell is it? Like, like six, six, 624... Four, 623 of these fuckers yep. in this huge uh, looks like a lava lamp or something in this device and there, there's kind of a, a retread of what happened in the first film or like oh the aliens are trying to take it away and the humans are trying to take it back I, I mentioned this on, on Twitter and um, some people agreed with me but especially like in, in the 70s or 80s when you had TV shows that were based off of films the first episode would be like a shitty note for note remake of the feature film <laughs> with a different cast. And that's what this feels like. It's like a shitty remake of Lilo and Stitch because like the same damn things happen, except yeah, not yeah. as good. 
we and we even have Lilo being rejected by her peers. Jesus. Although admittedly, yeah, that's right. That's kind of appropriate because that whole thread never got resolved in the first film. <laughs> no, and also, I mean, uh, even though they're on the island of, of, of Kauai, which is more remote, you still have a lot of tourism. So it's not like people would accept these these aliens right away. I like that ice cream guy is back, and he still doesn't get to eat his mint chocolate chip. Yeah. Um, a little running gag, but I like that it's here. Well, let's talk ice cream. Uh, what What's your favorite flavor? Okay, so stri- I, I have several. It's really hard to pick. That being said, the, the one that I can always eat is mint chocolate chip. Oh, just like in the movie. That's funny. Yeah, it, it's, it really speaks to me in that way. Uh, but, you know, af- after that, things like uh, the grandpa flavors, so butter pecan and rum raisin are neck and neck. <laughs> you can never find... You, you can never that find anymore, rum. No, no Baskin-Robbins used to have it all the time. But um, Strawberry and peach are both good, provided they have mm-hmm. actual chunks of strawberry and peach in them. Sure. Um, one I've had that I, I really like is... Oh, there used to be a Cold Stone Creamery that went out of business by us, but um, it's probably good for my waistline. But they would take basically like apple pie filling and cinnamon and graham cracker crumbs and fold it into this sweet cream ice cream. So every time you take a bite, it's like an apple pie mixed with vanilla ice cream. And oh. I, I'm a sucker for those sort of flavors. Um, but I'm just talking about ice cream because I don't want to talk about Stitch the Movie, really. But we, we must. Uh, <laughs> Stitch the Movie... Yeah. They do bring back Cobra Bubbles, which is like mm-hmm. I like that he's here. I wish he had more to do. He wish sort he had of more ha- to do. It's, well, it's been Reigns again. And, and like when he's first introduced, because they call him because they don't know what to do with this whole hostage situation, and he basically lays down a real tight plan for dealing with the hostage situation, and then spends the rest of the movie just off to the side, mildly commenting on what's going on. And there's a lot of stuff that's telegraphed, like the. Uh, because when Jamba gets kidnapped, they're gonna they're gonna give the experiments to Hamsterville, and he's gonna give them Jamba, and the exchange is gonna be made at this old abandoned lighthouse. And there's all this stuff. Oh, they don't use the lighthouse anymore; it's too expensive. Which okay, does this movie not know what lighthouses are for? Lighthouses are navigational markers to help ships find port, but also to avoid navigational hazards such as jagged coastlines and reefs. If if running that if running that lighthouse is too expensive, you've got ships running up against reefs unless nobody is moving boats near the island. But this is Hawaii. This is some of the most heavily trafficked waterways in the United States. Right. It's not like they're I don't know in in a fjord off the coast of Finland. Something so that's it, really remote. But, but then also the moment you see that the lighthouse and that it doesn't work, you're like, oh, yeah, the electric guy is going to live in the lighthouse and light it up. And that's exactly what happened. There's no tension or discovery there. That becomes his home because it's a big old light bulb that he can't explode and he gets to send off power surges whenever he wants. Although that also brings up an interesting question. So if if ships already know to avoid that area because there is no lighthouse, what are they going to do the moment they see another lighthouse? Is that gonna is that gonna lead people to navigational hazards? Could they clone that electric um, version of Stitch and I just guess have so. every single lighthouse? 
I mean, Hamster Veal says that he has cl he, cloning technology, and he does at one point try to clone Stitch, which I kind of wish he had succeeded, because a whole army of Stitches wreaking havoc might have made for a really fun scene. But, yeah. like so many opportunities for fun in this movie, the movie will not take it. No, it just seems to do the laziest thing it can. It's, uh... Well, the whole movie just has a feeling of, hold on, don't get too excited. Anytime there's a prospect for action or uh, the stakes getting raised. Definitely. It's it's just truly one of those things that's... Uh, so and it ends with a, sort of too much of a nice little bow because, you know, Homsterville gets arrested by the Galactic Council. Lilo and Stitch become agents to round up and find homes for all the other critters. Uh, we see all the critters that fell because the, the capsule gets opened when there's a space battle, a second space battle, and the capsules rain down on Hawaii. But none of them end up getting wet. They all just end up in like precarious positions. And right after Lilo and Stitch take the assignment to round them up and find them homes, we see all of them fall into sources of water and all sorts of neat variant experiments escape. I wish we could have seen them engage in a little bit more mayhem, if only to establish the stakes of what is going to come. And Jamba and Experiment 625 get stuck on Earth with only bread and cheese because they weren't able to get bologna. Oh, hey, do you know that this movie dodged a real bullet? Uh, a literal bullet or a figurative bullet? Well, figurative. So, okay, now, I cannot find a source for this, but according to IMDb Trivia... Jared Fogel was considered for the as the original voice for Experiment 625, the sandwich-obsessed one. They ended up going with Rob Paulson. Oh, my Lord, was that the right decision? Jared Fogel, that name sounds really familiar. Can you refresh my memory? That... He was the spokesperson for Subway who claimed to have lost a lot of weight with this, like, Subway diet. And then in the 2010s, he turns out he was a pedophile. Oh, shit. Okay. So in addition to this movie being boring, it would have had that hanging over its head. Thankfully, it does not. Um, completely, yeah. No, that makes sense. Completely. That's, my brain is just scrambled. I'm not getting enough sleep. <laughs> he has the best running gag in this movie. There's this bit where he's like, oh, well, while everyone's like trying to find Lilo and Stitch and figure out what's going on, he's like, well, I'll stay here and I'll get out my intergalactic communicator and the periwinkle pages and I'll just start calling planets and I'll try to track down Jamba. And he's putting in all these long numbers and all the planets like, hello, is this planet? Ah, yes, is Jamba there? Then like he dials another number. Hello, is this planet? Ah, is Jamba there? <laughs> I just love the idea that there's planets whose names are alphabetical vowels and consonants. And they keep calling back to that. And it does eventually work. He dials a number labeled cell phone, and it's literally the phone in the cell where Jamba is being held captive. Wow. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good part. It's, um, I don't, this whole movie is just so frustrating. It, it has potential. They don't really reach it. Well, it's also it's also one of those things where like where you know since this is a pilot for a series, because Lilo and Stitch is definitely for a family audience. It, it's meant like it has things for all ages. Stitch the movie is clearly aimed at kids, but it's aimed at kids in the worst way. Kids deserve better than what's in this movie. 
They do. Yeah, I, I would give this a sequel. No, I think this is lazy. Um, maybe the TV show is, is better. I'm, I'm no, not... it is not. Okay. I've seen a few episodes. It is even more slower placed and bland than this. That being said, I found out, and I'm probably going to watch this so that we can talk about it on a future episode. There is an episode that is a Kids in the Hall reunion. They get the complete cast of Kids in the Hall back, and they each do a voice. And I think they're all supposed to be members of Pleakley's family. Really? I believe so. Hmm. So I'm gonna to try to tra I'm gonna track that episode down and watch it for a future installment here on Sequel Cast Two. So if you were saddled with having to make a sequel to this, how would you do it? I would say there's an accident where uh, there's an accident where there's all these aliens all the experiments they're all going to be released all over hawaii it's shaking it's overheating and uh there's an explosion everybody uh and the explosion kills uh lilo very dark oh, opening wow and stitch is the only survivor and because stitch is always at the wrong place at the wrong time it's blamed on stitch so it would be kind of like stitch is on the run kind of a survival uh you know, he's on the run, kind of like Rambo in First Blood or something. And uh, it would it would end with uh, um, Stitch realizing that the only way he can save his race is to uh, is to off himself. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I think he feels like he's responsible for everyone's pain. And so he has to, it would be a very dark uh, stitches is so on the run and then kills himself. It's like a 70s movie, a 70s drama. Well, it sounds more like The Room. That's true. I did not. I did not do it. It is bullshit. Yeah. Oh, you know, maybe that's Dr. Hamsterville's accent. Maybe it's the Tommy Wiseau accent. I think you're right. Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> I did not do it, Lisa. I did not do it. So, there you go. What's your pitch of sequel? So, mine. So, uh, I am not interested in the prospect of rounding up all 623 other experiments and finding them homes. So, I'm going to skip right on past that. Um, the sequel is going to begin with uh, Lilo and Stitch uh, finding a home for the last of the rogue experiments. Uh and everything is fine, only it turns out there was a prototype called Experiment Zero, which has, a, which is completely genetically unstable and can duplicate the abilities of the uh, of the other uh, of the other experiments. And guess what? Now that they all have homes, they're really easy to find. So Experiment Zero escapes from a containment unit, comes to Earth, and starts stealing powers from all the other experiments, and. It is thoroughly evil, and basically by the end of the movie, it's a giant kaiju with the powers, with like just an infinite number of powers, and that is what they have to. That's what they have to protect Hawaii from. Uh, and of course, Jabba and Pleakley will combine their uh, their ships into a giant robot. And uh, turns out, violence doesn't work; it only makes the thing angrier and more powerful. And what ends up what ends up saving everybody? Because I want there to be some sort of emotional stakes to this movie. 
is that Lilo, is that Lilo and Stitch embrace Experiment Zero and kind of kind of accept it, not necessarily forgive it for its actions, but accept it. And Experiment Zero has a change of heart and starts trying to repair the damage that it caused. And I'm going to call this Lilo and Stitch Episode Zero. Nice. If it did well, does that mean it would get a, a third entry called like Negative One? No, I, I would want. I want to make this first franchise even more confusing. So it would be. It would be Lilo and Stitch One. So you have Lilo and Stitch, Stitch the movie, Lilo and Stitch Episode Zero, and Lilo and Stitch One. That's funny. Cool. Um, so. <laughs> Got a uh, question. It's that time of the show. What you're watching? I have watched something that is uh, I found pretty pretty surprising. Have I talked about the show Cursed? Uh, no, no, I don't believe we have. Okay, so with the, I, I've been trying out a, a Shutter um, trial, and I think you, nice. you enjoy that service. And there's a show in there called Cursed. Six episode series, a documentary series talking about horror films that apparently have cursed sips or whatever. And uh, there's an episode on the Twilight Zone that uses pretty raw footage of that accident that aired on TV at the time. Wow. And this was when I heard that footage was actually aired on the news at the time, I was shocked because it's, I've seen little bits and clips on YouTube just because I uh, had read a book on that case, on that court case, and was curious. Um, what they show is pretty damn extensive and uh but it, it, it's well done you know they tried to talk to john landis john landis wouldn't talk about it but the uh the set person talked about it one of the uh maybe one of the explosive guys talked about it and then what's interesting is they used a a modern day explosive crew to try and recreate what that explosion would look like mm. in a field they don't rebuild the vietnam village but it's uh, it's pretty big, and it's uh, and they contrast uh, the attitude on that set with sort of Lloyd Kaufman's attitude on his sets uh, in regards to safety. And uh, while Lloyd Kaufman gives his interviews, he's in drag, uh, apparently playing a character in his upcoming movie. Um, what is it? Troma's uh, Shitstorm. It's an adaptation of the the Tempest. Oh yes. Kind of a. a a follow-up in a way to Tromeo and Juliet, right? Uh, a a many, of the, many of the same things and, and kind of taking yeah. taking Shakespeare to an extreme. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I hope that comes out this year. I haven't seen that sort of stuff, but it's... Uh, but anyway, I think, you know, the show's really interesting. I also watched some of the episode on Poltergeist that talked about weird stuff that happened on those sets. Uh, it, it's well done. It can be disturbing and the content can be pretty extreme. I saw the episode on The Crow, right? I mean, they talk about with Brandon Lee and they talk about Bruce Lee's death too. Very, very sad. So you have to be in a melancholy sort of mood for it. It's not going to cheer you up or anything uh, in these awkward times, but it's uh, it, it's a well done series uh, created by Jay Cheel, who hosts uh, one of the hosts on the film podcast, uh, Film Chuck. So... Uh, Thrasher, what's something you've been liking? Uh, so I finally, uh, I'm, I'm a Pixar nut, and I finally saw Pixar's Onward. Which is, uh, see, directed by Dan Scanlon, screenplay by Dan Scanlon, Jason Headley, Keith Bunin. It's got Tom Holland, Chris Pratt, Julie Louise Dreyfus, Octavia Spencer, uh, Mel Rodriguez, 
uh, Ali Wong, lots of lots of really interesting people cast in this movie. Um, overall, I really enjoyed it. It's 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 a very it is strangely enough like it it definitely feels like a very personal film, mm. but it also feels much smaller and much lower stakes than a lot of Pixar movies. But it's got all the details right. I mean, there is a there is a genuine enthusiasm for fantasy and for fantasy gaming that is present throughout this entire film. Uh, the ending took me by surprise. And I just, I just like that. It's, I like that. It's a story of two brothers uh, trying and failing and then eventually succeeding to connect with each other and with their uh, dead father. It's, I, I was very satisfied by this film. Great. I think, uh, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Is that the one they threw on Disney Plus really, really early? It was yeah. one of the first things with COVID-19, right, where it couldn't really get the big theatrical release. Yeah, it came out, it, it was released to theaters, but it was released, like, I feel like the same week or within a week of the pandemic really breaking out uh, across uh, the United States. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was moved over to streaming services very, very quickly, which is where I saw it. Nice. Um, I think I would have liked to have seen this in the theaters. I'd like to see all the Pixar movies in the theaters, but, uh, you know, needs must, as they say. Yeah, I think I'm behind on some of the Pixars. The last one of theirs I really liked was Inside Out, and that was several years, there was a few years ago. That, that one I thought was quite moving. That um, definitely was a high point uh, for them. Yeah. Um, I, I still think it's hard to beat the one-two punch of Wally and Ratatouille. Mm. Definitely true. For different reasons, but and even Toy Story three was uh, an amazing movie. So much, so much better than I think it had the right to be here that anyone expected. Yeah, I um, th there's a pretty funny movie on YouTube where, uh, I can I can talk about this. Toy uh, mild spoilers for Toy Story three, um, but uh, a video on YouTube, a, a guy um, took the movie on his computer. And there's the scene, you know, where all the toys are, no dialogue, they're all holding hands as they're going to be thrown into the fire and the trash compactor or whatever it is near the end. And the guy did a hard cut from that to the end credits and put like a really sad song on it, burned it to a DVD. And then that's the version he showed his mom. And he yeah. just filmed his mom's reaction. She's like, what? What? That can't be the fucking ending. <laughs> I mean, that 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 is a cruel trick to play, and yet I think somebody had to play that trick. In some ways, that might have been a better ending, really. If you're gonna, <laughs> I I would disagree, no. but it certainly would have been an impactful ending. Ballsy, right? <laughs> the other so one thing, one thing that Onward does that you almost never see in fantasy films of any stripe uh, is that. They are like in the first act, they set up rules for how magic works and magic conforms to those rules for the rest of the movie. That's nice. I mean, that's that's important, isn't it? Because you don't want it to be like out of nowhere. The salute they get the solution out of this unexplained power. Yeah, you don't want like you don't want people you don't want people just spontaneously getting powers whenever possible. I mean, and okay, we we I know we talked about this when we covered the new Star Wars trilogy, but that is a problem the new Star Wars trilogy has. Characters with the Force just pull out new powers whenever it's convenient to the plot, and that is very lazy. Um, Onward does not do that. There, there is a 
there are rules the magic follows and there's also a limit to what spells the character can the main character uh the main elf can cast so it's not like they can just open the spell book and find exactly what they need all the time and the other yeah. the other thing the other thing i also like in the climax all the spells that were used previously come back and pay off in a big exciting ways in the climax mm. nice um speaking of shutter uh, Joe Bob Briggs started a new season of the the Last Drive-In. Have you caught any of those? Yes, and they had they had the brilliant audacity to begin with Troma's blood sucking freaks. I've, I've only seen that once. I don't know if I. I suppose I should watch it again. It's been did I show it twenty years? That feels no, like no, no. I it, it does sound like something you would have done, but no. I had a a, a friend in in high school. Um, we're still friends, actually. He's in Boston now. Uh, Zach Kaufman, and uh, he had like almost all the traumas on VHS, oh, and, 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 and he had video. And, yeah, we watched the videotape one time, and that's uh, that's a movie, all right. I mean, that has if you think other movies are gross or whatever, like this just seems to to revel in its perversity. Oh no, it dares you to keep watching several times, even more so than. I think that's the movie people thought Human Centipede was. Because frankly, uh, we will cover Human Centipede on the show at one point. I think that would be an interesting discussion. But Human Centipede, it's not as graphic as you think it would be. It's actually rather chaste in some ways, despite how gross that premise is. But like Bloodsucking Freaks, you see every, like you see everything. It, it, nothing is held back. And beyond that, it is not just to shock you. That shock is in service to the themes and the philosophical point to the movie. The movie is about the nature of art and exploitation and the relationship that exists between a work of art, its creator, its audience, and its critics. Yeah. No, I, I really need to give it another shot on... Uh... What the hell is it? On the podcast hosted by Josh Miller and Joe Dante, the movie, the movies that made me, Joe oh, Bob yeah. Briggs was on there talking specifically just about bloodsucking freaks. Oh, I need to check out that episode. I'm a little behind yeah. on that podcast. It's the Lorraine short. Newman episodes were amazing. Well, with, with the quarantine, they've had to kind of do these Skype episodes where they oh. kind of call a bunch of the past guests and just have them talk about movies. And uh, Ron Perlman is especially good. John Landis, of course, is a, is a great rock and tour. Um, Oh, you know, yeah. beyond that, two other yeah. things about Bloodsucking Freaks. One, it has a very important position in the history of both exploitation film and independent film. It was the first movie ever released by Troma. I did not know that, really. Yeah, it was the very first Troma team release. Uh, they did not make it, but they distributed it and uh, I think covered some level of the post-production. Uh, but the other thing is there's a really good DVD, and the DVD has an audio commentary by... Uh, oh, crud. Uh, who, who's the guy that did Hostel? Eli, Eli, Eli Roth. Eli Roth, yeah. yeah. Eli Roth yeah. does an audio commentary, and it is a mix of actual like facts about the making of the movie combined with his own riffing. Um, he, he is very knowledgeable about horror movies and very, very funny. I wish he could bring that, those traits into a horror movie, but his audio commentary is amazing. Definitely watch the movie and then definitely rewatch it with Eli Roth's audio commentary. It is both informative and entertaining to the extreme. 
He's very good. I keep on talking about Shutter here, but yeah, he's very good on the Shutter series, Eli Roth's History of Horror, I think it's called. Uh, and he's one of the people interviewing uh, other people like Stephen King and whomever. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't know what's quite missing from what I've seen of his movies, but... Uh, well, like a ha the house with the clock in its walls, which I talked about in a previous What You're Watching that he directed, it's really good. Like, I think I think he needs to branch out from the horror movies he usually makes because I find that he shines more. Uh, when he's working outside of uh, of, uh, of horror and torture porn type movies. Yeah, and I also think the uh, torture porn it had its moments in the sun. Not that it still can't be a subgenre of horror, but uh, you uh, as 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 the strippers pointed out in the musical Gypsy, you got to have a gimmick if you want to have a chance. You have to uh, you know kind of keep on changing up what you're doing. If you're gonna bump it, bump it with the trumpet. Uh. Man, I wish I read an excellent uh, two-volume book called Finishing the Hat by Stephen Sondheim in which he annotates all the lyrics to all his songs. Nice. And with that number in Gypsy, he's really he's still angry that like they replaced one of his lyrics. Really? Yeah. I think it might be, it was originally Twinkle While You Shake It, and it was supposed to be something else that was probably a bit more racy. Um, but my, I, I told you my high school did Gypsy, right, which is quite an odd choice. They let us do Gypsy. They wouldn't let us do Rocky Horror. They wouldn't let us do Little Shop. They let a high school put on a show about strippers. <laughs> Underage strippers, technically, right? I feel like Little Shop would be the perfect production for a high school uh, high school musical group. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It has a diverse cast. has uh, fun, fun numbers. You can be over the top and people won't uh, slam you for it. Yeah, I think... You can do the puppetry stuff like it. Yeah, I agree. I, I wish uh, we would have done something like that. But that was then. This is now. OK, so um, next time we'll be talking about the next movie in a series, which takes place in between Lilo and Stitch and Stitch the movie. It is called. Is it just Lilo and Stitch? Lilo, oh, Lilo and Stitch to Stitch has a glitch. Try saying that five times fast. <laughs> And uh, as we see on the, the cover art, it does show something that is in this film. Lilo has a, a crayon drawing of Stitch showing how much of him is good and how much of him is bad. Yeah, which is something they try to bring back in Stitch the movie with uh, Sparky, the electric one. Right, and that, I guess Lilo's going to do conversion therapy on all these uh, aliens. Oh, no. To make him good? I don't know. I'm just, I just said that off the top of my head. I haven't seen this movie. but Well, we're going to see it, whether we want it or not. <laughs> we're going to see it. I mean, is it ethically correct to make a, uh, one of these experiments more good than it is? Well, that's actually a weird... Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing about this movie. So, like, Jamba designed Stitch to be evil and destructive, but Stitch, you know, isn't, isn't bound by that. Stitch has free will, and Stitch does improve, and... Presumably, by helping the experiments find homes, these other experiments were also designed to be evil and destructive, that they're going to do the same thing. Uh, there's a line, and apparently this does come up in either this, come back in either the series or the last movie here, but Jamba makes reference to how he's working on an experiment 627, which will be genetically perfected so that it cannot turn good under any circumstances. Hmm. Really? 
Yeah, so we'll you know we'll 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 see what happens. You know, it's like what Doctor Hibber said: only one in a thousand people has the evil gene. Walt Disney had it. Adolf Hitler had it. And uh, yes, Ron Quimby has it. I guess Experiment Six Two Seven has it too. I wonder if Disney used that in their supercut of Simpsons clips referencing Disney. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> they um. Yeah, I wonder if any of those Simpsons things are being trimmed like some of the other things on Disney+. Plus. Because uh, it's soon they're going to have that Simpsons in the right aspect ratio, isn't it? Oh, I, that can't come soon enough. I agree. But it makes the old episodes look like shit for various reasons. Until then, I've still got my DVDs because physical media yeah. is the way to go. And they don't have the commentaries on Disney+, Plus, which is idiotic. Oh, God, those commentaries are great. I re-listened to some of the commentaries that Conan O'Brien is on. Uh, they are hilarious. Didn't Conan O'Brien said once, and he thinks like his ideal job would be to lay in a sunny field and write lines of dialogue for Mr. Burns. Yeah, I believe he has said that. And like, and he talk he talks about like when when people just kind of like want to like talk to him on the street and who are aware of his background with like SNL and The Simpsons. And like, and he says that there's a general vibe or an expectation. Oh, so like, if you lose the talk show gig, you're gonna go back to the Simpsons, right? <laughs> so we'll 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 end on this note, um, unrelated to Lilo and Stitch. Of course. What's your favorite Smithers line or Burns line? Oh Lord, that that is tricky because there's so much old old American slang that you can have fun with. Yeah. Um. I, oh, yeah, you know. With Smithers out of the way, I was free to wallow in my own crepulence. That's a good one. The one I like there at some, it might be a country fair or something, and, and uh, Burns and Mr. Smithers, and, and Burns says, uh, Mr. Burns says, why did I say Mr. Smithers? I think it's in the show in years. Um, Mr. Burns says, is eating an ice cream, and he says, mm, Smithers, I enjoy this, uh, what do you call it, iced cream? <laughs> oh, yeah, like, putting ED on the end of part yeah. of something's name. And and ice cream has been around since like uh, since before America. I mean, George Washington would have it being taken on uh, horse and cart, cooled by huge blocks of ice, for the White House. Uh, <laughs> it's true. It did it did ex exist long before industrialization. Yeah, actually, White House the White House wasn't with the Washington Washington. I don't think that it might have come later. This is not political cast. Well, um, yeah. well, certainly not about our, the the architectural history of Capitol buildings, but two 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 runners up. There's an episode where someone makes like is making reference to like Springfield's like most famous, oldest, most well loved man, uh, and and Burge says, "Well, you know, I have and." Because it's been a running gag that he's over 100 years old, but he just kind of goes, well, you know, I have been uh, 83 for a while. Like, he's been lying about his age in a coy way. I think the other one is in Homer the Smithers, when he's just rejecting everything Simpson Homer Simpson does, and at one point goes, you call this postum? Which is like an old granulated cereal from the 1800s. Oh. Uh... I like this line. I don't remember the context, but he calls he calls someone a jackanape, and uh, we don't get that enough. Jackanape is is a is a great uh, yeah uh, is is a great like insult. We really should bring jackanape back. Oh, here it is. Yeah, 
Uh, postum was a powdered roasted grain beverage used as a oh. coffee substitute for, pe- I guess, for people who had a moral or or medical objection to coffee. <laughs> it's created by the Post Cereal Company in 1895. That must be pretty close to the founding of Post, I would think. The cereals are fairly recent. Oh, at least, at least breakfast kind of cereals we know today is a fairly recent thing. Okay, well, this is not cereal cast. Uh, Although Serial is the name of the popular podcast, but uh, yeah. So <laughs> they took it from us. Whatever it is, they stole it from us. They stole it. Okay. Next week, we'll be talking about Lilo and Stitch Do. Stitch has a glitch. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. You can follow um, me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, my plug for the week is if you go on Amazon, you can uh, purchase my new book, Simply the Best Interviews with uh, Game Designers, Composers, and Skill Flaws. Uh, has uh, a few dozen interviews with people like Yoshitaka Amano of Final Fantasy fame, Tom Hall of Doom fame, and, and whatnot. I did that back in my college days from 2004 to 2005. So I spent a few months editing those into shape. And it, what's funny is at the time I thought like, oh, the spelling and grammar is awesome on these. But like they were complete shit. Like it took so much work to polish all that stuff. I thought it was going to be easy. It took me three months. But um, but there you go. Yeah, I think it's a good, good collection of interviews. Uh, Thrasher, what's your plug of the week? Uh, I've got two. Uh, one, uh, of course, the uh, Fading Suns Pax Alexius Kickstarter is over, but I believe now you can pre-order both the books and the PDFs. So uh, if, if you uh, want to enjoy this great space opera uh, tabletop RPG, definitely check it out, uh, Fading Suns. Uh, and the ones that I specifically worked on are the upcoming Reeves sourcebook and the upcoming Charioteers sourcebook. Uh, and so uh, I hope I hope you find those both informative and thrilling. Uh, and second... Uh, if you uh, want to support me in a more immediate fashion, uh, and I bring this up because I've been running this online for people by special request, but I wrote a Call of Cthulhu scenario called One Starry Night. It is available on drivethroughrpg.com. It's published by Skirmisher Publishing, LLC. It is dual-statted for both tabletop and LARP play. So once the pandemic is over, if you want to turn it into a LARP, it'll be ready to go. Uh, And it also can be modified. It's designed to be modified so you can play it either in the classic Call of Cthulhu 1930s or in the modern day. So definitely check out uh, One Starry Night. I do get residuals from the publication of that book. So whatever you spend on it, a portion will find its way to me. Excellent. Um, Great. So uh, until next time. Oh, we got to do a sequel scene. God damn it. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. And uh, originally this scene was selected because we thought our friend Alex was going to be on, uh, but unfortunately he could not make it for this recording. So we've got four characters. We've got uh, Dr. Hamsterville, we've got Gantu, uh, we've got Dr. Jumba, and we've also got Experiment 625. So I guess we should each take two. Yeah. Um, I would like to do Hamsterville. Cool. Uh-huh. I'll do a 625 if you don't mind. Okay. And that leaves who else? That leaves Gantu and uh, and Jumba. Why don't you do Jumba? Because I did him last time, and I'll do. I'll Gantu. do Jumba. Okay, so I'll do Hamsterville and Gantu. Okay, so and and this is on Hamsterville ship. Uh, uh, Doctor Jamba is a prisoner, and, uh, and all these characters are just kind of like talking and inter- trying to interrogate one another. Right. Okay. Uh, any seconds now you'll hear his tortured cries of regrets. Please let me out. I'll tell you everything.
any second this pathetic screaming, begging for mercy, any second should be about now. I don't hear anything. Shut up, I can't hear. Huh? A funny thing. Six to five has all powers of six to six, even has advanced language programming. Unfortunately, he's also a lazy coward, <laughs> but uh, makes great sandwiches. Hey, y'all want uh, ham or tuna? Grr, I am irked. Irked is a is an emotion that people should start talking about more. Yeah, I mean, that was the name of one of Steve Martin's earliest pictures, the irk. <laughs> um, on that note, for a sequel, we'll be doing Lilo and Stitch 2, Stitch as a Glist. Glitch. God damn it, I can't talk this morning. Um, for a sequel cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. We all don't got any bologna. We've only got cheese. We'll have some real Robbie Bond in the song. That's how I say. That's how I say.